we're in Psalm 4, so rolling along through. Uh, this psalm, some uh, scholars would tell you, is, is probably tied to some degree to Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is kind of a, a morning song, and Psalm 4 is an evening song. And I'm saying song and psalm, so it sounds like they're similar because they are. A psalm is a song. But before we dive into here, I've got a question. Anybody in here have problems sleeping, with the exception of Bill Carter? Anybody here have problems sleeping with the exception of Bill Carter? That man can sleep like instantaneously, anywhere, anytime. Mark, I think he can sleep on the roller coaster. Let's trap, strap him in. Put him, put him on one of the roller coasters at King's Dominion. I want to see if he can sleep in a roller coaster. I think he can. <laughs> but sometimes sleep is hard to come by, Right? It could be many things. It could be that you've got a, uh, a lot on your mind. It might be that it's a lot of unfinished things from the day that's going on. It's causing you not to be able to get to sleep at night. Maybe stress is weighing you down and, and causing you to not be able to sleep. Uh, maybe family keeps you up at night. Turn and look at the person beside you and go, that's you, right? Or maybe you are married to someone that snores a lot so you can't sleep. You can also turn to that person and say, but anyway, sleep can at times be elusive. Well, David here in this psalm is going to uh, ironically talk about sleep in it and how he rests in the Lord. But before we get deep into this, I want to read you. It's not really a quote. Um, it's more of a, a statement uh, that John Piper wrote about sleep, and I think it's really good. So it'll be on the screen so you'll be able to follow along. He says, Sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. Amen? That's a good place to start. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we are in control and that air work is indispensable. Can I get a witness? Anybody? Anybody other than me? To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. Sleep is a parable that God is God and we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while a hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Don't let the lesson be lost on you. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and never sleeps. He is not nearly so impressed with their late nights and early mornings as he is with the peaceful trust that casts all anxieties on him and sleeps. Amen? Easier said than done. I get it. But sleep is vital. God gives us rest so that we can trust him more but as we know we like to be in control so we like to uh, steal from where we can it's uh, we, we choose to cheat ourselves when we don't enable ourselves to get healthy rest psalm 127 addresses this as well he says unless the lord builds the house those who build it labor in vain Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You ever thought about that? That, that sleep is a gift from God. It is a gift that every single one of us needs. Amen? No exceptions to this. Uh, you can try uh, to stay up for days on end. You can pound energy drinks. You can do all these things, but ultimately you will crash. We need rest. And David uh, understands this greatly. David spent uh, a number uh, of his days on the run where sleep would have been very difficult to come by. If you can imagine fleeing from someone who's trying to kill you, and this wasn't only on one occasion, but on multiple occasions, David is in this predicament. And to be hiding in caves and caverns uh, and not knowing what the next day brings can be, I would think, kind of stressful, kind of make you a little anxious, if you would. 
But as we see in this psalm, um, we're going to see David's antidote for this. Last week in Psalm 3, we saw David is writing as he flees from Absalom, his own son, who is not only seeking to dethrone his father, but to take his father's life. And here, David is going to continually cry out to the Lord. So the first thing we see here in this passage is David has a right understanding of who God is. We see him pleading with God, answer me when I call. Now, that may sound that he's in some way almost dictating to God, you need to answer me, but it really is not the way it is truly written. He is actually calling out to the Lord, pleading with the Lord for God to intervene. Now, we saw last week at Psalm 3, there was a superscription over Psalm 3, which says a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. Here we have another uh, superscription. It is called, To the Choir Master with Stringed Instruments, a Psalm of David. So we know David is the author. Those words, those superscriptions, are part of inspired scripture. Uh, they were not added in. We've discussed that chapters and verses were added only about 700 years ago. They are not part of the original uh, inspired, inerrant word of God. But these superscriptions are. So here, David is, is writing a song that is going to be set to music that he, and then even today, we can sing unto God. So he is first off, when he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. He is identifying who his God is. This is the God of his Righteousness. He is calling on the very character and person of God. Because air God is a holy God. He is perfectly holy. But you and I, on our own, as sinful men and women, we cannot approach God without Christ Jesus. It is Christ who enables us through faith in Christ to come to God, to plead to God, to cry out to God, to, to beg God to answer our call. Here we see David rightfully identifying God as his righteousness. For the Bible tells us that our righteousness is but filthy rags. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. None, zero, nothing. But it is through a, it is when we come to faith in Christ that Christ imputes to place on, uh, it's actually a, a crediting term, he places on us his righteousness. And when he places his righteousness on us, we now can have a right standing with God. We need Christ's righteousness imputed to us, meaning we need Christ's holiness placed before us, credited on our account. It is through Christ that God can look upon us not anything in and of herself. Paul says very clearly, there is nothing good within me. There is nothing good within me. It is only because of Christ. We need Christ's righteousness. But not only does Christ's righteousness get imputed to us, but our sin is imputed on Christ. It is a double imputation, not amputation, imputation, okay? So our sin is placed on Christ, and Christ's righteousness is placed on you and I, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ alone. Not because we did anything, okay? We have done nothing to earn our salvation. It is completely the work of Christ. Now, once the imputation, which happens, okay, we are imputed righteousness at the moment we come to faith, which is what we call justification. Justification is that one-time act where we are justified by Christ once and for all. But then we start this lifetime process we call sanctification. Okay? If you don't like big words, then you don't like the Bible. Because these are important truths. Sanctification is progressive. It is a lifetime process in which we are growing more and more into the image of Christ. It doesn't mean we're sinless. We still have this old sin nature, okay, that is still trying to raise its ugly head and is still trying to remind us at times of who we were and what we used to be like. But in Christ, we are what? A new creation. The old is gone, the new has come too. 
So this means that we, because of this imputation we have, because of the righteousness of Christ being placed on us, it means that now we are positionally righteous. Even though we still sin, hopefully less and less, but we are legally righteous by God's standard. For God has credited the righteousness of Christ to our account, and he did this when he saved us. Got it? Because you need to get that, right? We need to understand that so we can understand this fully. We see this in Paul's writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he, being God, made him, Christ, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Christ lived the perfect life. Jesus Christ lived the life you and I could not live. We could not do that. Amen? We don't have to work at sin. Anybody? We don't have to work at it. It, it comes natural because we are inherently born with a sin nature. Okay? So Christ, though, who lived the perfect life, he who knew no sin, okay, so that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, being Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Paul probably had meditated continually on these passages in Psalms. Matter of fact, if you walk through the Gospels, you walk through Paul's epistles, you walk through any parts of the New Testament, you will see the Psalms continually being spoken of. Most likely, the, the, the authors of the New Testament had memorized large sections of the Psalms. The Psalms were incredibly important. And, and as you know and I know, uh, so often, you know, songs get stuck in our head. Anyone, you probably got one right now, right? Some of you, someone right now is thinking Sweet Home Alabama. Anybody? Can you get a witness? No, I'm just kidding. It's Freebird. Let us go. Let us get out of here. Uh, but songs are so powerful because we remember. And you think about the songs you learned as a child, and we still are able to remember those. And, and that's what the Psalms are. Uh, they're such an incredible way for us to learn God's Word. So um, just, you know, sing them out loud, right? Just Go singing, and Patrick, you can start singing this, right? Answer me when I, I can't do it, but it's but it's there, right? So, all right, but he is he is acknowledging who God is, God of His righteousness. Then he says, "You have given me relief when I was in distress." So then he's understanding not only who God is, but he's understanding God's grace that God has given him and extended to him grace upon grace upon grace. Now, you don't have to go far. Uh, just go back into uh, the prophet Samuel's uh, writings and, and you will see the story of David, right? David understood better than most God's grace because time and again, God literally spares his life. Multiple times he is in uh, positions that he very well could have, could have, and probably should have been killed. But because God's hand was on David, God carried him, and God's grace was extended. David acknowledges this. God, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Notice he doesn't say, you know, uh, family or friends. No, God is the one who's given him relief. Second Corinthians again, Paul understands this equally. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my strength, right? No. You got to listen, right? Most pastors could get up in front of you and make up stuff, and how many people would catch it, right? You should throw like rocks at people like that. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Again, we like to be in control, right? Even of things like sleep. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Charles Spurgeon, if you um, really want, uh, well, probably I would say one of the best commentaries on the Psalms. He wrote uh, what's called The Treasury of David. And these are three volumes. You probably can get them in two volumes now, too, but I think originally it was three volumes, where he literally walks through the Psalms of David and the Psalms. And this is what he writes about this particular uh, passage in David. 
speaking specifically David, he says, here he reviews his Ebenezer's and takes comfort from them. Now, where does that come from? What's an Ebenezer, right? Ebenezer Scrooge. I didn't know he was in the Bible. No. First Samuel tells us in chapter 7, says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name, what? Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. If you go back into 1 Samuel, you will notice that they are constantly in battles. When the Lord was with them, battle was secure. But there were times that they were disobedient. They were unfaithful. They, they did not inquire upon the Lord. And they would go to battle and they would face defeat. And they would go so far that they even took the ark, which was to be placed there in the tabernacle. It was the very place that God himself would come and dwell with his people. That's why over in John, uh, we read that, that Jesus came and tabernacled with us. He came and dwelt among us. It is the exact same principle here. And they would get to the point, though, they would use the ark almost as this, almost as this, like, you know, superstition type, uh, you know, it, it would help them not understanding it was the presence of God. It wasn't just this gold box. It was the fact that God himself was who was going to lead them. So they had all these battles and they would be going back and forth and things of that nature. And they understood when it was the Lord who helped them, that's when they had victory. And that's why Samuel calls this uh, place Ebenezer. It literally means the stone of help in Hebrew. Now, if you are like most people, you will understand, even though we don't always like them, that sometimes blessings come in hardships. Anybody? We don't want that per se. We don't ask God, God, I want to go through a hardship so I can experience your blessings. Maybe you have, but you're probably the rarity, not the norm. But we do know that God is always at work in the storms. He works in the blessings. Even the times that we cannot see him, God is at work. David acknowledges that. He understands that God is at work. Interestingly, there's a great quote. It's by Winston Churchill's wife, Clementine. You know that song? Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling, Clementine. Right? Did you know that was Churchill's wife? I didn't know that. It's really not. All you history purists, I don't know anything about that song. I don't, that's all I know. I don't know the next line or anything. But, but it's her, her church, Winston Churchill's wife's name was Clementine. Now, understand this. All right, Winston Churchill has, I, I think most people would say, uh, been appointed by God at a, such a time, right? Uh, he comes uh, at a time that uh, Great Britain is under extreme uh, attack, okay? They're being attacked uh, during World War II. Churchill rallies the country. Uh, if you listen to any of his speeches or read uh, some of his books, you will, he's one of the most gifted leaders of his generation. Well, shortly after that, in like 1945, so we're talking, you know, a year after the war, after everything has gone on, he loses his prime ministership. He loses the election. I mean, how does a guy who literally just led the country from the brink of annihilation lose in an election? So only a wife can do this, right? So Clementine, in trying to cheer him up, says to Winston Churchill, this may be a blessing in disguise. But only Churchill. Churchill was so witty. He says he grimly replied, well, at the moment, it seems quite effectively disguised. Because he couldn't see how in the world this could be, in fact, a blessing. But we do know blessings are so often in disguise. And we know the, uh, the great hymn that we so often sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my, what? Ebenezer. Here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Come thou fount of every blessing, even though sometimes blessings come in the midst of very difficult seasons. You 
have been or know someone that that has happened to. And by the way, if it hasn't happened to you personally, just wait. <laughs> it just, it, it, it simply will. David continually, many times, understand, much of David's struggles were self-inflicted. David had to pay the consequence for his sin. He was, uh, I mean, can you imagine? This is the guy that Scripture itself writes a man after God's own heart. I mean, I'm thinking if that could be what was written on air tombstones, we'd probably all be really pleased if that day came that we had a man or woman after God's own heart. That's who this David is. But, but, but David did face hardship. Not all were brought on by himself, but, but quite often it was. His, his mass dysfunctional family was, in fact, by his own doing. And that's not to say that you can't do everything perfectly right and, and, and kids can get to the point where they just do their own thing. David did not help his own situation at all. But yet, he knew who his God was and he cried out to God. He not only acknowledges God's graciousness to him, but he even asked for God's grace in the future. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He knows God is good. First Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We just spent six, seven weeks doing the study on the holiness of God. And the whole point is when we understand when we recognize God for who he is we will start to see who we are and that we are sinners saved by grace you will notice the progression through the apostle Paul's life he starts off saying he's what the least of all the apostles he's saying I'm not even such that I should carry Peter's knapsack right I'm not the guy I, that's not me by the end of his life he is writing to his beloved son in the faith and what does he say? I am the worst of all sinners. You notice the progression? He says, hey, I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, that guy. By the end of his life, he had been conformed so into the image of Christ. Sanctification had worked so mightily in and through his life, through the working of the very Spirit of God, that when he looked at himself, understanding he was fully saved by the grace of Christ, but that he was a wretched, wretched man, and that apart from Christ, he could do nothing and he was nothing. When we see the holiness of God, we will understand how sinful our hearts truly are. Notice here David then goes from pleading to God to pleading with others because he recognizes God for who he is. So now understanding even more of who he is, he is pleading for those around him. Oh men, how long shall my honor, same word there for glory, my honor, my glory be turned into shame. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? You and I, we're around people that, that we have that prayer. How long for you that you will reject the, the free gift of salvation that has been brought by Christ Jesus. How long will you continue to go, uh, you know, uh, what does Jesus on the road to Damascus tell Paul? Why do you beat the goats? Why are you persecuting me, Paul? It wasn't that fact that he was persecuting the church, which he was, but he was in fact persecuting. He was going against Jesus himself. How long will this continue to be when he is speaking of this he is speaking to the fact that that we have to submit ultimately to god's will hb uh, charles says we only fulfill god's will when we show up where god wants us to be if we're not where god wants us to be we can't fulfill the will so often we need to be where God desires. And by the way, you've heard people say over the years, well, the safest place to be is in the center of God will, God's will. That's kind of yes and no. 
I mean, there's no better place to be than obviously the center of God's will. But that does not grant you some kind of physical security. Amen? We know so many brothers and sisters who are facing incredible persecutions beyond anything we can imagine. And guess what? It's not because they're not where God would have them be. Many are, are in countries that are just, you know, just completely against the very works of God. So we need to understand David's cry here. But notice as he continues, he says, How long will you love vain words? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. It is the Lord who called you. It is the Lord who chose you for himself. Right? Just as Jesus chose 12 men to come and follow you, Jesus Christ called you by name. Now, maybe it wasn't this big, audible voice that you heard, Jim, come to me. But he called you because he loved you. He cares for you. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. He has set us apart. Those who've placed their faith and trust in Christ alone are set apart for Christ, for himself, not for yourself, not for myself. Then he says, what? The Lord hears when I call to him. If you are a child of God, he hears you. Now, sin, as in the case of David's own life and our lives, can greatly hinder that relationship. But when your child does something, and anyone in here ever been a kid? Anybody? Anybody ever been a kid? I know some of us are still there, right? Right? We're still in that state. But when your child, or in this case, all of us, at some point, we did something we know we shouldn't do. Right. And I'm not talking about when you're, you know, 18 or whatever. I'm talking about when you're a kid and you're growing up. You, we, we, we do things. We disobey our parents. We break something precious. Did your parents take you? And this is you. We need to talk. But they didn't take you to Nebraska and leave you. They were disappointed. There was a consequence that you probably paid. And if you didn't, that would explain some of you. But just make sure you're following along. They still loved you. You were still their child. We break the heart of God when we sin against God. But God still hears us, but we're pulling the what? I can't hear you. What? We don't listen because sin hardens our heart towards the things of God. So he follows this by saying, be angry and do not sin. Because we don't like getting caught, do we? We don't, get, we don't like to get caught. Because what happens when we know we've done something wrong? What do we do, typically? We hide. Amen? We hide. It's, it's what our first parents did, right? What did Adam and Eve do? They hid. They hid in the garden. What is Jesus? I'm going to say that, okay? I would say it's a Christophany. It's the appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ in the garden. As it says, and the Lord walked in the garden. We know God the Father is spirit and truth. We worship God in spirit and truth. So this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ is in the garden and he now he knows where they are right but what does he say where are you he knows where they are just like when your child or you in case did something you shouldn't have done and your parents are looking for you guess what they know where you are all right they know all the places you try to hide you think you get away with this but but you ever thought you know I mean but he but he and then he, what is what is Adam's response we were naked and afraid. Jesus doesn't ask them, why were you afraid? He asked them, why were you, why did you cover yourself? Who told you you were naked? You see, they tried to cover themselves. They took the, 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 uh, the, you know, the leaves and whatever and tried to cover themselves. Christ covered them with his blood as he has done for you and I. We cannot hide from God, but we are to, it says, be angry and do not sin. Now look, there are times of holy angst. There are things we should be angered by. Uh, many of you have probably seen the movie Sound of Freedom. That is, a, a, that is a, a, an issue we should have an anger towards, right? Child trafficking, the horrific things that happen that should not happen, we should be a voice for. Uh, we celebrated uh, a little over a year ago um, the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned. But that's just one step. 
that's not the end all. We still must be a voice for those who have no voice. We must still not be angered towards that individual, towards the sin and the enemy who is causing that. I just got an email this week uh, uh, from a lady that helps uh, organize uh, the prayer outside of Planned Parenthood in Richmond. And she just emailed this week that a young lady that literally walked in the door at Planned Parenthood came out about 30 minutes later just bawling in tears. And just through her tears, she said, thank you for praying. I did not do it. Amen. Hello. That could be God's cure for cancer. Right? He could. But all life is precious. And we need to still be voices and not just think everything's done. There are things that anger us, but not sin. And they loved that young lady. They helped get her connected to people who would walk with her. It wasn't just, great, great, glad you didn't do it, good luck. No, how can we help? What do you need to help raise this child? Amen? How do we bring you in? What can we do? All of these things. There's, a, there's a, hundreds of things we could talk there, but we don't have time. So. But notice, as he is pleading with others, he is not only telling them to be angry, but not to be angry. I mean, to be, they can be angry, but do not sin. But they are to ponder in their hearts on their beds and to be silent. In other words, they need to listen to the Lord and they need to search their heart. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 46, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You see, we go to God in prayer. And we get to talk and we get to share. We get to uh, tell God what's going on in our life. We get to ask God for uh, petitions in our life. But notice, David really here is showing us what Jesus showed his disciples when they asked him to teach them to pray. The first thing David is doing is acknowledging who God is. Oh, God of my righteous. So, uh, or God of my righteous. So he is uh, adoring Christ. He is acknowledging God's sovereign re- sovereignty, his, and he's showing his reverence for him. Then, when he says, ponder in your own hearts when your beds, you know, he's searching his heart. Uh, we're going to read in just a minute, Psalm 51, and he's going to talk about what that looks like. You ever thought about this? Search your heart, God. Search my heart, God. What is in my heart that needs to be dealt with, uh, that needs to be confessed, and, and needs to be uh, mortified, right? You want to read a great little book, John Owen's The Mortification of Sin. We need to confront our sin, ponder in our hearts. Then he'll get into uh, Thanksgiving and, and ultimate petitions. But we must focus on our heart. When we lie down at night, take that time. You, ever, you, know, you sleep a little better with a clear conscience. Well, you'll sleep way better with a clean heart. (laughs) So we need to confess our sins because we are way worse than we think we are. Psalm 51, this was David's response. Nathan has confronted David. Uh, He has uh, committed adultery. He has sinned mightily. He has covered his, tried to cover his sin. It didn't work. Right. And, and David is uh, Nathan is sent by God to David. And this is his response. And this is, you know, it's in, it's a psalm that you really should read regularly. He says, and the superscription on this one is create in me a clean heart. O God, which, you know, that song create in me a clean heart. Oh, God. And renew, you know, you know it, right? It, those were kids' songs. Teach your kids theology through songs. Amen? Come on, that's so good. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Notice, he says, transgressions, my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. David is taking the ownership. 
David understands this is not someone else's fault. It's not the blame game. Uh, this is his sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He knows, hey, what he had did, he was going to still have to deal with, which would ultimately be the rest of his life. He would deal the ramifications of that sin. But God was just and forgave him. And notice what he confesses against you and you only have I sinned. Interesting, he didn't just say against you. He says against you and you only have I sinned. I mean, we would go. I mean, David broke a lot of commandments. David hurt a lot of people. But it's ultimately that relationship with God that he has to address. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And here it is. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. People are always like, well, what was the Holy Spirit's role in the Old Testament? The same as it is today. The Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. It's part of the Trinity. It's always at work. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltlessness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I mean, think about it. When David's writing these psalms, I mean, you know, he's thinking back. God is the one who has saved him, who has spared his life. O Lord, open my lips and my, my mouth will declare your praise. For you delight in sacrifice... For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. David would have get, done anything. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. It says, the sacrifices of God, and this is where he's going here in verse 5 of Psalm 4. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So back in Psalm 4, what's the next thing he says? He talks about, you know, he has been set apart by God for himself. The Lord hears him. Be angry. Do not sin. Ponder in your hearts. And he says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices. Paul, Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship you know we don't really do it anymore once COVID kind of hit it changed you know the, the the passing of the offering plates so we don't really do it but like you know thought about it, I mean like when that offering plate did pass around I mean we should like put ourselves in it we should like stand in the offering plate that's what Paul's saying here we are to offer present our body as a living sacrifice instead some of us are passing it around and trying to make change for a five in it Do I need to repeat that? You know, it's interesting when you go back to particularly the height of the Jesus movement. I mean, they were hippies and coming out of, I mean, they had nothing, right? But when you, you hear stories at the stories, I mean, when they were coming to faith, I mean, they literally were putting anything they had. I mean, they would put a pack of cigarettes in the offering plate. It's like that's all they had and they wanted to, I mean, don't do that. We don't need your cigarettes. Um, at least not from deacons. Other people will take them. Y'all are really not listening good today. I'm just trying to make sure. But, but we need to offer ourselves. And, and that's not just part of it, right? When you think about offering, 10% doesn't impress God. That's the start point. God's concerned about the 100% and how much we steal from him all the time. God's not interested in the 10. He's interested in the 100. 10 is a starting point. We are so indebted, but we don't trust him with the simplest things. If you can't trust God with your money, you don't trust God. You are not, cannot sing the song of David. If you just are, you know, I mean, I get sometimes it's, it's a tough season and things like that, but you can't just, you can't just 
not trust in the Lord with all we have. God gives us our time, our talent, and our treasures. You can't steal from God and then say you trust in Him. It just doesn't work because it's not being obedient. Again, I'm not telling you you should tithe 10%. Because for some of you, it's way more than that. If that's what God lays on your heart and God works and has blessed you, you should give freely unto the Lord. A joyful, cheerful giver. But when you're begrudgingly and it's an issue and you struggle, you're not obedient. You do not trust the Lord. I don't care how much you say and what you think. You No, you don't. God requires all. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Then we will find a rest in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face up on us. How do we rest in God? Well, Nehemiah, not Nehemiah, excuse me, um, Moses spoke of this in Numbers. You know this, the benediction so often uh, prayed. Number six says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. David would have known this passage. He certainly had it by memory. He knew of the, of the way God had delivered his people. So he would have known this. And, and so when he's speaking these words of lift up the light of your face upon us, he's, he's, he's quite possibly reflecting back to even these passages. And that it is God himself, verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they when, they when their grain and wine abound. So what he's given us here is this picture of this vast harvest. The harvest has come. Uh, God has blessed abundantly. This is like the harvest to end all harvests. The vineyard is overflowing. So the wine presses are running 24-7. He says beyond that is the joy of knowing the Lord, the joy of walking in the Lord. Uh, Nehemiah 8 uh, addresses, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. As God's word is being spoken, they weep. Could you imagine what would happen in churches across air land if that ever occurs? But that happens when we're right with the Lord and we're walking with the Lord and God's spirit starts to move and it convicts us of sin. Folks, that's what revival is. Revival is not just, you know, people coming to faith. It's God's people getting right with God. When that happens, we will experience true revival. You and I will experience that. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. They've just come out of exile. <laughs> they have understood at this point, finally, what God has been laying out in front of them for quite some time. When you're faithful, you walk with me, there are blessings. But when you are unfaithful and you're not obedient, then there will be consequences because we have been marked. If you are a child of God, you and I have been marked. We are marked to be set apart. That there should be things about us that are different. And the differences should all point to Christ and bring glory and honor to Him. We have this joy, right? I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. All right. We have this joy. And when we have this joy, the last verse, finishing up here, then we will understand peace. In peace, then I will both lie down and sleep. You ever lie down and you can't sleep? Right? Happens regularly. So notice how specific he says both. I says in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David could go to sleep and sleep like a baby, even though he had enemies trying to kill him because his God was mightier than anything 
that was out there. Do you and I place that kind of trust in the Lord that we can go to sleep at night and not have to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow? Because if we're walking with the Lord, guess what? He's already written the day. Tomorrow's already been written. The story's complete. This book is not written in pencil or some kind of thing you can magically erase. The story's complete. The canon of Scripture is complete. You and I, your story's already been written. As we walk with the Lord, God reveals more of His story, including where you are. We're in this great story. Paul addresses this idea of rejoicing in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. And I understand, look, life's tough sometimes. And so anxiety is real. That's not what he's saying, but, but trust in the Lord with it. Because notice he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then what? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you want to read a, an old Puritan book by Henry Scudder, it's called The Christian Daily Walk. Some, uh, sometimes it's out of print. It's hard to find, but um, he writes a lot on this. And when John Owen and Richard Baxter wrote the foreword for your book, <laughs> and if you don't know who they are, um, great, great Puritan pastors and, and theologians, uh, you can probably say that's a, that's a good book to read. So I want to uh, conclude with this. This comes out of uh, Kevin DeYoung's book called Crazy Busy because we wear that like it's a badge of honor. We, we, what do we always say? Well, I've just been busy. No, you're not. You're not busy. You choose to do things that consume a lot of your time. You're not busy. You know who's busy? A single mom with three kids. One has autism. No support, no help. We're not busy, folks. We choose to do things that require a lot of time, but we're not busy. And we wear that like it's a badge of honor, like somehow Jesus is going, great, great. Kids are playing three sports. You're doing this, that, and the other. Great. That's it's not busy, right? It's, it's actually called insanity. All right, that's what it is. You know, the definition, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Ain't going to happen. But listen to this, and I hope this, will, I hope this will encourage you because I know I've probably not been overly encouraging today. But listen to this. We should rest in Christ alone for our salvation. But along with that, there is still an abiding principle that we ought to worship on the Lord's day and trust God enough to have a weekly routine where we cease from our normal labors. He made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath, Mark 2.27. God gives us Sabbath as a gift. It's an island of get-to in a sea of have-to. He, offers, he also offers us Sabbath as a test. I love this. It's an opportunity to trust God's work more than our own. When I go weeks without taking adequate time off, I may or may not be disobeying the fourth commandment but I am certainly too convinced of my own importance and more than a little foolish. If my goal is God-glorifying productivity over a lifetime of hard work, there are few things I need more than a regular rhythm of rest, and that's rest in the Lord. David could rest at night, even with everything. We forget he was the greatest, strongest, mightiest king. He was the most dominant world leader in the history of the world. He was the king of Israel, God's man who had given him everything. There's nobody of greater significance that was, you know, that, that we can really think of. I mean, David, right? You know, whom uh, the bloodline ultimately of Christ, who will establish his eternal kingship. David rested in the Lord and accomplished great things because 
he put his trust in the Lord, as he says in verse 5. Father, we thank you for your precious word. And God, may we truly find rest and rest in you alone, for you are the only one who can. Father, you yourself have told us to take your yoke, for it is easy. That, God, we are to cast our anxieties, to come before you. That, Father, you care so deeply for us. Father, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He is sitting there as, as we lift up our prayers, interceding them to you. And you are good and you are gracious. Father, may we take the time that we truly will know what you are calling us to, that we would find ourselves in your will. May we, by faith, trust in you fully with all that you have blessed us with. Father, we, we may not always like our boss, but what a blessing that we have a job. We may not like the fact that this or that is happening, but, but Father, to, to our home or to our car, but we have a home and a car. We have been blessed beyond measure, but yet we forget where the blessings come from. Father, you bless us abundantly and that you are a good father desiring for us to come and to sit at your feet to find rest in you, that you give us the strength by your spirit, through your son, to do the work that you have called us to do, that we are to be faithful. So, Father, may you stir in our hearts. May you draw people to yourself. May that you speak to hearts of men and women and children today that have not by faith trusted in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. For, Father, that is the only salvation we have is in Christ. And, Father, may you be glorified, may you be honored, and may we lift your name on high. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.